The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. You can support this series by coming to a live event, spreading the word, or making a donation. Find out more at theinterval.org. Thanks for listening. We, we have a, another night tonight with our uh, wonderful friends, the Casbis. Uh, Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. Um, this is the 20th talk. It's now been, it's a little over three years that we've had this partnership. We have um, three of our former uh, CASBIS speakers here tonight. By the way, we've got at least one other or two other uh, uh, former speakers here in the room, and we always love when our speakers come back. Um, so uh, this has been a great partnership, and the, the best part about it is the diversity we've talked about technology, environmental um, subjects, about psychology subjects. The last one was about uh, the Oxford English Dictionary. So um, take a look uh, at CASBIS. Uh, it is a, a remarkable institution that's been around for over 60 years, based at uh, Stanford, and it is one of the most important social science uh, hubs that's going on. Um, and uh, they have been historically important. They will continue to be, and we're excited to have the ongoing relationship. So thank you guys for, for being here tonight. Um, and, uh, and that brings us on to tonight's speaker. So uh, Shazin Atari, uh, Shaz and I have been talking about this talk for months. Uh, we've been really warming this up for, for a long time. Um, you know, she, she's been, she's going to tell you about the, the research that she has been doing, and then this is one of those kind of dot, dot, dot talks, where it's less about, um, or not just about reporting back research that has concluded, but about pointing to the future, and actually, I think, a, an exciting opportunity for us to, to be in dialogue about where she's starting to go as she's forming uh, uh, the path she's going to take. So, and it's certainly one of the most important subjects uh, that is in the world right now. So um, I have this mangy pile of books here, which are, are mostly from my personal collection, because uh, we want you to think about stories, the stories that are important to you. We're going to talk about those stories. We're going to talk about how, um, you know, all those things. And I, I'm going to let her explain more about that. But um, as she's talking, in the back of your mind, think about when has the story changed your mind? Um, how do you feel about the stories that you treasure the most? And, and uh, we'll, we'll get into that in Q&A. Please have a big round of applause for Shazina Atari. All right. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. All right, I'm super excited to be here. Um, I'm hoping uh, to sort of engage all of you in this conversation that I've been having, mostly with myself and my own brain, so hopefully <laughs> it's not gonna be completely wacko. Um, so um, thank you so much, firstly, to Michael for, uh, for not laughing through this idea with me uh, and sort of encouraging it and nurturing it. Hopefully it'll fly today. Um, so what I'm going to be talking to you about is fusing facts and feelings to motivate action on climate change. A little bit about me. So you might not know who I am. I grew up in this uh, place called Dubai. It's not part of Illinois. I was once asked that. <laughs> um, it's actually part of the Middle East. Uh, it's in this country called the United Arab Emirates. And um, uh, this is what it looked like when I was 10. So now you know how old I am. <laughs> so. Um, just stare at the screen for a minute. This is uh, 1991. This is 2005. Now, look at those four buildings right there. Those haven't changed, okay? Whoa. So if, hopefully you're drinking and this looks really cool. You can just go back and forth a few times. Um, so why am I showing this to you? The reason I'm showing this to you is because in a very short span of time, we can actually transform our environment really, really quickly. I mean, this is amazing technology, amazing innovation, amazing engineering. It's also, to me, uh, growing up here, um, it's very difficult to sort of look at this and uh, sort of wonder where did the desert go, you know? What happened to my landscape? And so uh, they're building ski resorts in the middle of the desert. There are three so far, more designed to be built. This is what it's gonna, this is what it's gonna look like. So it's kind of like an oil to ice conversion. Um, 
this is sort of a, a, the palm resort, resorts that you know everyone gets beach access. I mean, who doesn't love the beach? Um, so this is a photograph I took, and this was actually my last visit to the UAE. I, it's very difficult for me to actually go back because it doesn't feel, doesn't look like the place that I grew up in. And so this is a photograph that I took from the shore of a ship dumping sand into the ocean to make land. And this is how the, the, the sort of the shoreline has transformed over time. This is 1973, 1990, and 2006. So do you see the Palm Islands and the World Islands? It's pretty amazing, right? So in a very, very short period of time, the entire environment has completely transformed itself. And so this is where I grew up. This is my background. Um, so I came to the United States in 2000, and I was at UIUC, who there's some alums. Uh, we went to school together, and they found me here, which is amazing. <laughs> what? Um, so, did, uh, so I studied physics and math, and I was like, all right, uh, physics is amazing, but I really wanted to work on climate change. I really wanted to work on sustainability. The United Arab Emirates has like a very high, large environmental footprint. So does the United States. And so the year that I started my PhD was 2004. So I'm sort of giving you the story of my life, and then I'm going to embed that into the story of the work that I'm doing. So in 2004, the, the, the same month that I started my PhD, this paper came out in Science Magazine by Pakala and Sokolo. And like their first sentence in their paper was, all right, humanity already has all of the solutions we need to solve the climate problem. We don't have to wait. We have the technology we need. We can solve it today. So, Humanity already, process, already has all of these solutions, so then why haven't we done anything about it? Um, we still have this problem happening right now. Um, so what did they say in their paper? So they said, all right, this was sort of a, a back-of-the-envelope exercise that they did. So they said, all right, if we want to stabilize emissions and then we want to stabilize concentration, let's just think about it in terms of a variety of technologies, a variety of things we can do. So they said, all right, imagine each of these technologies providing a wedge, a, a sort of a one gigaton uh, of carbon decrease per year, everything from efficiency and conservation, renewable electricity, carbon capture and storage, for, like reforestation, nuclear energy, biomass, fuel switching, so on and so forth. And this is just to stabilize emissions. And then after that, we need to actually decrease our emissions um, to net removal. So they sort of put forward this entire portfolio. I said, great. Why aren't we doing that stuff? Um, and what they also said in their paper is, improvements in efficiency and conservation offer the greatest potential to solve this problem. So I started dedicating my entire career from then, from that point on, to figuring out why is it that we don't um, incorporate efficiency and conservation in our life. And I've been focusing primarily in the United States. So what's been going on? Um, as you can tell, uh, our carbon dioxide concentration, which is basically how much carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere, has been going steadily up. So it just keeps increasing every year. So every year that I teach my course, I have to keep updating the numbers. They keep going up. And it's like, that, every time I teach that, that one section of my class, it's like internal pain. I have to go home and have, my, have myself a, a nice gin and tonic at the end of the day. It's like, you know, how do we solve this? So. Um, when Al Gore sort of uh, uh, came up with the inconvenient truth, he was trying to keep it under 400 parts per million. So just as percent is out of 100, parts per million is out of a million. So we're trying to keep this at below doubling, and we've just passed 400 parts per million. So that is the challenge that we're faced today. So how do you visualize this in terms of temperature? So this is a beautiful graphic that Ed Hawkins did. It's basically a color map looking at what does the average temperature look like in the United States, and each stripe is one year. So as you can tell, if you just squint from the back of the room, it's kind of going from bluish to reddish, right? The folks at the back of the room, do you see that? So that's basically what's happening with our um, average annual temperature. Uh, so we're getting warmer. So, in trying to figure out why we don't act, I actually asked 700 people across the United States, hey, what is the single most important problem for you today? What is the single most important problem for you in the future? And what do you think is the world's problem today and the world's problem in the future? And here is the data, and this is data I collected in 2010. So the most number one problem that America faces today is the economy. All right? The number one problem that the world faces in the future is climate change. So the problem there is that the future always happens in the future. <laughs> How do we speed that shit up? 
Um, so how do we make the future happen today? And that's why I'm sort of really interested in stories and storytelling. I'm really interested in how do we compress time? How do we make time? Like, how do we imagine what the future is going to look like today? Here's another challenge. You guys have probably seen this already. Again, very, very difficult um, uh, graphic. What this tells you is the percent of Americans, and this is data from the Gallup poll, saying that they worry about climate change a great deal. What you notice is the more educated conservatives are less likely to worry about climate change. So the more educated you are, the less likely you are to believe that this is a problem and that this is something we need to work on. So this is a gap that we really need to figure out how to bridge. You guys with me so far? Yeah. All right. Um, but here's, some, here's something that I'm working on is, how, again, how do, you compress, how do you compress time? How do you make the future happen today? So as, as, uh, as Michael pointed out, I'm at CASBIS this year, and I asked 21 energy master students at Stanford, hey, what is the current energy mix? for our current energy system? And what do you want the future energy mix to look like? Okay, so let me walk you through the numbers. So on the first column, uh, actual energy mix, this is what our actual energy consumption mix looks like today. So that's the actual values. Our participants do really well, so they're really accurate with how the current energy mix is today. So if you see, for example, petroleum, the current mix is uh, 37%. Our participants on average said 34%. Really good, yeah. U.S., just U.S., and these numbers won't add up to 100 because these are row, um, row averages. Yeah. But what I really want to draw your attention to is what they want the future energy mix to look like. Okay? So I've put things that are carbon-based in purple, things that are non-carbon-based in green. So they really want a huge decrease in our carbon-based energy system, and they want a huge increase, nuclear included, in our non-carbon-based system. So that's great. So we have an image, we have an idea of what we want the future to look like. Now the question is, how do we transition to that energy system? How do we create a transition decarbonization pathway from where we are today to where we need to be? So that's the first piece that I wanted to show you. So the question that I would like to ask, and this is where storytelling comes into play, is what stories will you always remember? So I remember tons of stories from when I was growing up in the Middle East, and then I still remember them today. Uh, there's some stories that have completely transformed my life. There are some stories that have completely shaped who I am. And so what stories have changed your thinking and behavior? So this project, as Michael mentioned, just started. So I'm going to show you some of the responses I've received from uh, roughly 10 to 15 people who I've talked to so far. And I can't really put this into a survey, so I tried putting this into a survey to send to all of you. It doesn't make sense, because if I ask you something like, what story has completely transformed you? I, all of the participants were just like looking at the screen, being like, did you just really ask that? That's really hard. Um, so I had to interview people to actually sort of tease that out, pull that out of their, out of their minds, out of their mouths. So here are some examples. The Dispossessed. I just read this, reread this recently. Beautiful, amazing saga of different economic systems and what are the pros and cons of them. Atlas Shrugged. Um, a lot of you know that one already. Um, the writings of Abraham Lincoln, like how Lincoln sort of dealt with the Civil War. Uh, a special shout out to Libra. Um, uh, women's suffragist movement. The Matrix, of course, The Matrix, Neo, looking very handsome, and uh, uh, Star Trek. So these are sort of the stories that people have told me that has completely shaped them, but for different reasons. So if you look across these, some of them are fiction, some of them are nonfiction, some of them are based in history, some of them are not. And so what I'm trying to do is distill elements of narrative that are really, really important and that are, have very strong contagion power and then try to use that for the research project that I'll be explaining to you in a minute. Okay. So um, I've started reading this amazing book by Richard Powers, um, and in his book he says, the, the best arguments in the world won't change a person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. I kind of agree with that, because I've, I've actually been, so I've been working on climate change since 2004, and since this entire time I've been talking to lots of different people, and it's really hard just to show data and show facts, like the, the, the slides that I started off with uh, with my talk today, that usually doesn't change people's minds, especially if their minds are already made up. So I think stories are really important. Uh, Neil Gaiman actually gave a talk at The Long Now, and he basically says, all good stories change you. 
And I think that's really powerful. All good stories do change us, but sometimes we don't know how they changed us. And sometimes the change takes place like way, way, way into the future. So I'm trying to figure out how to deal with that. So people don't act in terms of how do you, so what type of action am I, trying, am I trying to get at? We need a price on carbon. I think all of, all of us will agree with that. We really need a price on carbon right now. And so we need public support for a price on carbon and Washington State is start, starting to do that. We need to change individual behavior as well that reflects our new transition pathway that we're trying to get to. And so a lot of my past work has looked at facts and feelings separately. I've sort of kept them separate and I've been toggling between bo both of them because looking at them together makes things really, really messy. So what I've looked at is how do people understand what is most effective for them to change in their own lives? So if I were to ask you today, what is the single most effective thing you can do to decrease your energy consumption? Would you know? Do you want to shout out some answers? Don't have kids. Don't have kids. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Don't eat meat. Don't fly. Don't fly. Electric cars. Food waste. All right, so we have a really good list. I'm gonna show you what the modal response is in the United States. You're gonna be really surprised. <laughs> and then I've also been looking at how do you change social norms? How do you get people to pay attention to this problem? Because attention is actually a very limited resource. So think of attention as like a very small pond of water that you carry with you everywhere you go. And every time someone asks for something, you're like giving them a little bit of that water and then you're like, oh my God, where did my water go? I need to go back into my cave. Um, so that's what uh, attention is. It's a, it's a serious, limited resource. So I asked you this question, in your opinion, what is the most effective thing? Here are the responses that we get. Since the 1980s, this has been the number one modal response that people, get, people give to this open-ended question. What is the single most effective thing? The modal response, starting with Willett Kempton in the 1980s, has been turning off the lights. And this is when you ask people very broadly, hey, what is the single most effective thing? Very similar to what I asked you. However, a surprising finding from my work that I'm not gonna show you, but I'll talk to you about it for a second, is if you ask people, what is the single most effective thing other Americans can do? Do you know what the answers are? All of the ones that you told me. <laughs> so carpooling, getting an efficient car, getting an electric car, uh, uh, biking instead of uh, driving. So the answers really change. So it's not that people don't know what is effective, it's that they don't want to do those behaviors themselves. Whoa, you're right. So I'm telling you, more challenges than solutions. Um, so turning off the lights is great, please do that, but it's not the most effective thing. Yeah, you guys figured it, you guys know already. Um, so I also, you know, given my training in physics and in engineering, I was really interested in how do people quantitatively estimate how much energy different appliances use. So if I were to ask you, do you know what the difference is between a watt and a watt hour? Do you guys know? You guys know. Okay, two hands went up. Do you guys know? Yeah, three hands went up. <laughs> okay. All right, a, a couple of guys in the back, and there's a friend saying, yeah, he knows, but he, okay, they're all pointing at each other. I don't think they really know. <laughs> Um, so a lot of people do not know what a watt and a watt hour is, right? So they don't know what the units of energy are. So what I wanted to understand is if I were to ask people about different appliances in their homes, how well do they, can they understand how much energy different appliances use, just broadly? So what I first had to do, and over here on the y-axis you have perceived energy used or saved in watt hours, and on the x-axis you have actual energy used or saved in watt hours. And this is a log-log scale, so it goes from 1, 10, 100, so on and so forth. So data that lies along the diagonal line means people's perceptions match reality, okay? So what I said was, all right, imagine a 100-watt light bulb. A 100-watt light bulb being left on for an hour uses 100 units of energy. Now, how many units of energy would your dishwasher use? Would you guys be able to kind of... Yeah, in the same amount of time, in one hour. So that was like the type of question I asked people. I won't, I won't, I won't put you on the spot. I'll just show you the data. <laughs> Um, so the, so I, I told everyone, all right, 100, uh, uh, 100 watt light bulb uses 100 units of energy. How many units of energy would these different appliances use? So in general, the orange line is the overall curve, but I'm going to walk you through it with some examples. So a laptops are overestimated by a factor of two, so people think it's equivalent to one light bulb when it's actually equivalent to half. And this is data from 2009, so now laptops are becoming way, way, way more efficient. Um, 
changing the washer setting from hot to cold actually uh, is underestimated by a factor of 40. So people think changing from hot to cold is equivalent to saving one light bulb when it's actually equivalent to saving 40 light bulbs. Um, so this is the entire set of uh, appliances that we looked at. And so what you notice is that when you start using a lot of energy, when you start thinking about appliances that use a lot of energy, there's a huge underestimation. A lot of this data is below the diagonal line. Not just that, people are not able to uh, correctly differentiate between these appliances, so there's this compression bias. So what we really need to do, if we are thinking about energy use, is we need to take that curve and pull it up towards the diagonal. How do we make people accurate? Then there's the other question, which I hope you guys will ask me, is that does accuracy matter if we have limited effort? And I would say, yeah, it does. If people think that you know, some of these ineffective behaviors are really effective and they're not, that's really problematic. So what we, does anyone have accurate perceptions? So we asked, this is disclaimer two, <laughs> we asked two electrical engineers and they're really accurate. <laughs> so engineers, yeah. <laughs> We're awesome. Um, so engineers do really well on this task. Um, and so what we did was we tested a manufactured heuristic. So let me walk, let me break that down and what that means. A heuristic is basically a rule, right? So I can give you a rule to enact a particular behavior. A manufactured heuristic is a manufactured a rule that I give you to use when you're making a decision. So if I were to tell you large appliances that heat and cool use a lot more energy than you think, that actually is a heuristic that if you're making your energy estimates, that actually pulls that curve up towards the diagonal. So I'm not teaching you what the difference is between watts and watt hours. I'm not telling you how to compute how much energy different appliances use. I'm just giving you a very simple rule. What we, so that's what the heuristic condition is right here. So you can see the baseline basically replicates the original data. The heuristic condition bumps the slope up. And then if I give you multiple anchors, so I just gave one light bulb in the first condition, but if I were to give you like an LED and I, and I were to give you a dishwasher, that actually helps you gear shift between these different appliances. So that actually improves your perceptions a lot. So there are ways that we've found that actually are able to correct people's misperceptions of energy use, sort of circumventing teaching people basic energy physics. You guys with me so far? Yeah? Okay, great. So using this idea of a manufactured heuristic, this is what, I'm this is what I propose to do with this new fellowship that I just received, and I'm super excited about it. That's why I want to tell you about it. Um, what I'm planning to do is create a library of are politically, politically feasible policies that we can use to stabilize our CO2 concentration in the United States and in the world. I want to then take those policies and distill them into heuristics. And then once I distill them into heuristics, I want to embed them into narratives and see whether there's going to be uptake and transmission. <sighs> That's right. All right. Uh, so I need, I need your help with this, because this is really, really hard. Um, so I sort of came up with this idea of emotional and cognitive scaffolding, because the thing is, some narratives stay with us and some don't. So the idea of just a scaffold is basically providing us with something that we can hold onto, such that when we face a new situation, we still have that scaffolding that we can hold onto in order to change our behavior, in order to redirect our behavior. So that's what I'm also trying to look at, is what, what are the different features of narratives that provide this emotional and cognitive scaffolding for us that we can hold on to and grapple with? So that's the charge for this new Carnegie Fellowship that I'd like your help with, and that's what I'm sort of looking at. So I'm trying to fuse facts and feelings, and why do I want to fuse facts and feelings? Because I think you need both. I think feelings without facts is kind of like religion without science. Uh, I think one without the other, they're really interdependent, and I think one without the other is either lame or blind. You can pick. Um, so I need to figure out how do I feel about the situation? What is the intensity of that feeling? And then I need to figure out what should I do about that situation, and what is my call to action? Like, what should I be doing? So right now, the huge problem is, is that we have a very embedded narrative that basically tells us that individuals do not matter, that none of us... Are, we, all of us are just drops in the bucket. But what we don't realize is that these drops can add up, especially when it comes to policy support. And we've actually seen that recently with the whole child separation issue in the United States. 
So that's sort of my, um, that's why I think fusing facts and feelings is important. There are lots of books that I've sort of been uh, uncovering by talking to people of, that, that have mattered to them that actually do a somewhat good job of fusing facts and feelings. So the Lorax, some of you guys might, might have read them, read uh, Silent Spring. Uh, uh, Before the Flood was a documentary, Day After Tomorrow, Inconvenient Truth, so on and so forth. An Inconvenient Truth actually is really powerful. Like, I, I was actually surprised by this. So uh, when I watched it, I felt like, all right, this convinced me that this was, there was a problem, but I didn't know what to do about it. And in the first, in the first uh, I haven't seen the, the most recent one, but in the first one, um, Al Gore only told us about what we could do in sort of the rolling credits. And I thought that, yeah, this was an amazing movie, amazing platform. And what I found was, with, with some of the more recent research coming out, is that not only did it um, change some people's opinions about climate change, and it, it increased knowledge and concern, willingness to reduce greenhouse gases, and it actually increased pur the purchase of uh, offsets within a 10-mile radius, but that actually decreased very quickly after the movie was uh, aired. So this is sort of one example of a narrative that has somewhat changed the way people feel about the issue, but I think we can actually go a lot more deep, deeper into the problem, especially if we infuse storytelling. So I actually visited Bishop. Has anyone been to Bishop? Whoa. So you guys have seen the bristlecomb pine trees? Yeah. Okay, so amazing, amazing place. It's almost like a, akin to sort of a spiritual experience um, that I've ever experienced. So these, um, these trees are called the bristlecomb pine trees, and they're some of the oldest trees in the world. Some of them go up to 5,000 years old. And so um, uh, Richard, going back to Richard Powers, he basically says that there are generally three levels of conflict, within a person, between people, and between people and the environment. And so how do we deal with these different levels of conflict? Do we need different narratives or do we need different features of narratives that can deal and attack these different levels of conflict? So for example, just to make it uh, pretty clear, you know, I've actually decreased my flying quite a bit, but it actually, I haven't been back home to India in like maybe three and a half, four years now, and it's like kind of high time. <laughs> so it's really, so either, my fa either that or my family is gonna disown me. So, it's, um, so that's my battle within a person. Like, you know, I'm trying to figure out how do I keep my goal of decreasing my carbon footprint active with my goal of also having a good, healthy family balance thing. Um, battle between people is how do I deal with what others are doing? So let's say if I decrease my carbon footprint and other people around me don't, how do we deal with that? And the battle between people and non-people is basically how do I value things that don't have a voice? And I think that that's really, really important. So as we know, the bristlecone pine trees are actually uh, going to be harmed under climate change. Uh, they have survived so, so, so long. And that's really, really challenging for even people like me who don't get to see them very often. And so how do we figure out ways, narratives that can help us understand that, that can help us sort of give us an anchor to hold on to, hold on to that? Um, this also sort of brings me to back sort of full circle to Neil Gaiman, who actually said, uh, the way a story can survive is actually by, by using, by surviving multiple, at least three generations. So you need to tell the story, you need your kids to tell the story, and need, you need your grandchildren to tell the story. And so the question is, what are the features of narratives that we can use that allow that type of transmission, especially when it comes to climate change? Um, so what makes a narrative memorable? How do I figure out what are the components of emotional and cognitive scaffolding? And we need implementation plans. So people really like plans, right? So uh, Weight Watchers, it works. Uh, um, having people stop smoking, it works. So we need implementations plan, implementation plans for our restricted carbon budget as well, especially when it comes to changing, um, changing uh, the collective belief about what we need in terms of moving forward. So the challenges are that deep narratives might actually take time to influence behavior. So if you think about some of the deep narratives in your life, you might have read it as a kid and then you might be acting on it now. So it's really hard to experimentally measure, test, especially going back to cognitive science and psychology, it's really hard to actually measure and test that. So we need to figure out ways to do that. We need to move beyond selling a specific policy, but why we need climate policies more broadly, and we need to figure out how to bridge this growing partisanship that I showed you earlier. And so this is my last slide, and I'm hoping for a really rich discussion, but before that, I wanted to tell you a few more things. 
I'd like to know what, move, what stories have moved you, stayed with you, transformed you. What are the features of that story that has sort of made it really sticky and very visceral for you? What are the features of the narrative that can provide scaffolding? How do we stitch manufactured heuristics into powerful narratives? Do you guys have examples or ideas for me? And the few things that I want to leave you with um, is that uh, you know I, I got to speak with Kim Stanley Robinson, who Michael talked about earlier. I'm sort of putting my hand on the Bible. <laughs> I, spoke to, <laughs> I spoke to Kim Stanley Robinson a little bit earlier, and he sort of explained to me why we like narrative so much, why we like fiction so much. And his explanation, which I think is a really powerful one, is that in one life we get to live 10,000 lives. Like as the more you read, the more you get to experience other people's shoes, other people's insights, the more you, get, you can grow, grow empathy. The other challenge is that um, there's sort of two more points that I'd like to talk to you about. We're both villains and heroes in the story. So moving beyond Joseph Campbell's sort of the monomyth where it's, where it's just one hero on this sort of singular journey and we move forth, we're sort of, we are the villains because collect, we're collective villains and we're, we could be potential collective heroes. So how do we design a story that has multiple players? And then finally, um, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this, which is the power of utopia versus dystopia. So there are lots of climate communicators that sort of keep showing dystopian images of what the future is gonna look like and I think that's really negative. I think that's really harmful for effective communication because that actually leads to the ostrich effect and this, that's what it's actually called, where uh, the person receiving that information just digs in and puts their head into the sand. And so how do we pull that out by both showing what the dystopia is and how do we prevent that by painting another picture of a utopia? And so with that, I would like to thank you for your attention and you guys are great. And thank you, Michael, for inviting me. Thank you. Get a seat. I think we're going to get the thank you so much, Shaz. That's great. Um, we're going to chat a little bit, get, get your questions ready. Um, Thanks. And Miles, are you, are you handy? I'm, I've, got a, I've got a question for Miles, uh, so, so make sure he gets a, a mic. I'm giving you a five-minute warning so it doesn't count as putting you on the spot. <laughs> that was, um, yeah, seems easy. Yeah. Easy enough. <laughs> All set. We'll wrap it up here tonight and then should be done. Um, how do you keep your drive going and enthusiasm when you see challenging stats and challenging responses from some of these things? What, what's your, are, are you, yeah, is it, is, it, is it optimism? Is it stubbornness? Is it what's, how do you characterize um, how you keep mm -hmm. your drive for this? So I've been called stubborn uh -huh. <laughs> by both students and collaborators. <laughs> I'm just looking at the floor. Um, no, that's a really good question. Um, so I guess a, a, a way to reframe the question is why do I work on climate change? Um, so I think that this is sort of a, we're at the, we're at sort of where the, the paths diverge in the forest and humans have this ability to see a problem and solve it. We've done that multiple times in the past. And so I have a deep belief that we can solve this, even though we haven't as yet. Mm -hmm. And that's what drives me, is that I, I love people too much. I just vomited a little bit on my own, on my own comment. <laughs> Sorry. Do you, do you, but let's, so let's take it easy. Do you think really bad. we can solve it? Do you think we can solve it because we're so damn smart or because we're going to get afraid at some point? Or what... Do, do, do you know? I mean, do you think about it that far? What, what do you yeah. think is the, the what, what capacity um, changes some of these trajectories, do you think? So here's, here's where, where I fall. So we've, we've, we've actually, I'm actually just coming out of a couple of conferences where I've been talking mm -hmm. to lots of people about this, including Saifu and a meeting at Livermore and some other meetings. And, um, and to be honest, I think that we've had the technology for a long time. So there, there's still a lot of people that keep saying, oh, we just need better battery technology. We just need you know, better nuclear technology. We just dot, dot, dot. And so we've had the technology for a, a long time. And I'm not saying technology doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that we've, we've had that. I think what we need is a deeper emotional connection with the problem so that we can act on it. Because if the future is always happening in the future, no matter what technologies no matter what technologies we have now, unless we sort of internalize this externality of carbon dioxide, we're not going to act. 
And so it's not about cleverness. I think it's actually about the ingenuity uh, completely embedded with the emotional capacity of why we should be acting. Mm -hmm. And so facts and feelings. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, when you, it was interesting, when you showed the first uh, images of oiled ice, mm -hmm. um, the ski it, resort. It, yeah, yeah. It, it, it made me think of uh, the Michael Pollan's narrative around uh, your eating oil, right? Mm -hmm. his, his whole, and, and it's interesting because as you've asked us all to think about the stories that have changed us, or the way, one of the ways I think about it is have set facts in my head that I then have used ever since then. Actually, it was his Long Now talk, and it was before I was working a lot with Long Now, but I saw him um, talk about it, and he, he makes the explanation of, you know, this, of the corn and oil and, and the relation of everything, and, and, and it just doesn't make sense in the bad environmental decisions around the, the large-scale uh, industrial farming. Um, what, what I, so, so to connect that to, and I, I wore my Neil Gaiman mirror mask shirt tonight because... Um, for me. Yeah, and for Neil himself. Um, so what, when, I, when I reflect on that and what our goal here is, and I, and I think about, so, so Neil talks about the viral aspects of stories. He talks about um, stories being alive and in a way they're using us to to stay alive longer. We're, we're really just vehicles to keep stories going. Um, the lesson I learned, I kind of keep to myself. I may talk to some people about it. It doesn't have the virality in every sense that a, that a story does. So in a way, I kind of keep it to myself. I might sell that a little bit, say it a little bit to people, but there are other stories, legends, things that whatever the, the, the sweetness of it is that I think become more social and, and, and propagate more. Mm -hmm. do, do you think there's something like, because there's a question of like, are we talking about education or storytelling? Because education, but it seems like education may stay with the individual and not propagate as quickly as that. Mm -hmm. I don't know, am I, am I going down a bad path there? Or do, you, do you think that that's, is that a useful way to think about it? Um, so I think, I mean, I'm talking to sort of a room full of communicators. I think if you're a really effective communicator, you're probably using some stories, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think storytelling allows people to imagine a journey, but in general, um, scientists uh, seem like they're less com comfortable using storytelling as a method of communication, especially in the classroom. But I've also been experimenting with that more recently in a course that I teach at uh, Indiana University called Human Behavior and Energy Consumption, where students want to hear the story. I mean, I started today's talk with the story of me growing up in a completely foreign land, you know? And so I think that makes information more sticky as opposed to just the facts. Mm -hmm. But there are people that are just the facts, ma'am, kind of people, and they don't necessarily um, uh, want to use storytelling in the same way that I'm proposing. So that's a great segue, actually, to the question I want to ask Miles. <laughs> so Miles Traer spoke for us before. He is a, a geologist at Stanford and a science communicator of some note. Um, Miles, I want to ask you, and I'm not, I'm doing this, um, I'm doing this to put you on the spot, but I'm doing this um, not to promote what you did, but to ask you why you did what you did. Why did you do what you do? So you've done, you've done two projects that have, um, that are fun and that are, that are interesting and about climate. I'm just going to summarize them real quickly and I want you to tell us how, how did, how did that happen and what kind of effects have you had? One is you, uh, extrapolated the geological history of the Game of Thrones world. <laughs> and that started conversations uh, of some sort, and I'd like to know what those were. And the other is you looked at the carbon footprint of superheroes. So you took known superheroes we all know and said, is Wonder Woman worserer than the Flash, worserer <laughs> than the Batmobile? So, um, so, so did you have, were you just doing that for fun? Did you actually? <laughs> Did, did, and, and so, so what was your intention and, and, and what kind of outcomes? Do you have help, helpful, uh, good feedback for us on that? Okay, there's a, lot, there's a lot in there. Right. Um, uh, so uh, one of the reasons that, or one of the, the best methods that I found in doing projects like this or in producing a podcast called Generation Anthropocene or doing any of this work is that the stories are better when they're made personal. And Shaz has said that tonight multiple times. You know, you feel it more when it resonates with the things that you already care about. And so I am a nerd 
uh, to the nth degree. And so, yes, I love Game of Thrones, and yes, I've been reading comics and love superheroes, and it meant a lot to me. And when I connected something like climate change or you know geological history, which is a way of sort of compressing time, you know, how do we understand millions of years? You know, try to imagine a million anything. No, right, my, my brain just sort of melts, but if I can connect it to something that I'm already in love with, something that I already care about, I found that it actually works really well. And so with Game of Thrones, it was, you know, the conversations that came out of that were hilarious to me, you know, where people were saying, you know, like, you don't need to know anything about geology. This thing is really fun. And I was like, I, I care a lot about geology. I care more about geology than Game of Thrones. Uh, but, you know, wait, what? But people still seem to love it and people still seem to mm -hmm. care about it. And they would ask these questions about, like, wait a minute, you know, what causes an ice age? You know, wait, what, how are you interpolating a climatic history from the rocks? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do that. You know, it's cool. It's, a, it's this amazing science that we can do. And with the, the carbon footprint of superheroes, it was the same way. Um, I mean, that story began with me sitting around a campfire and someone asking me what my favorite superhero was, and I said, Batman. And after heated conversation, he said, Miles, you're a hypocrite. You're an environmentalist. Batman's got to be terrible. And rather than laughing, I was like, I'll bet I could calculate that. So, you know, <laughs> it, but it was, it was that moment of, like, I, I immediately saw the project there because I went, I love this, I care about this. If I love this and I care about this, and there's clearly box office records that suggest that a huge part of the world that loves and cares about this, if I can connect that in any way to this other thing that I also love and care about, which is climate change, that that will make a huge impact. So that, that was basically the why of why I put those things together. Thank you, Miles. Thank you. Do you, you, you have any thoughts or takeaway on that? I mean, there's, there's emotion there. There's, so it's, it's, it's communicating through your love and you, I don't mm -hmm. know, you find the people that are nerding on the same thing you're nerding on? Or, mm -hmm. or I mean, is, is, is some of that helpful to, to the path that you're on, do you think? I highly recommend you check out Miles' uh, <laughs> websites. I have, they're really nerdy and really great. Uh, I was kind of surprised with how bad Batman's carbon footprint was. It's terrible. <laughs> um, so I guess this is, this is sort of a question for the audience, right? I mean, if you're not really into comic book heroes, that's not gonna really appeal to you. And so I'm looking at, um, you know, when I, when I think about reading, like, um, uh, you know, there's some of Ursula Le Guin's books that actually paved the way for J.K. Rowling to write Harry Potter. Right. And people don't know about that work, but they love Harry Potter. So I'm trying to understand what is the la landscape and fabric that um, make things really sticky. And I think that for a certain audience, like that is amazing. You know, mm -hmm. the like the like people really do engage with the carbon footprint of superheroes mm -hmm. because that's such an innovative, amazing sort mm -hmm. of uh, way to conceptualize carbon footprints, and it's fun. Mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to also figure out like I think so using that for specific audiences is awesome. Right. But I think what we also need to do is figure out methods that we can use more broadly with people who, you know, Arlie Hochschild writes about in Strangers in Their Own Land. Like, how do we sort of appeal to the conservatives that I talked about right. who are more educated, like the more educated they are, the less likely they are to believe that this is a problem. So they're sort of digging their heels in. And so one, um, uh, so, so an idea that we've been talking about at CASBIS is to figure out ways to allow people to save face when they're extracting themselves from a mm. position that they've already dug themselves mm -hmm. into. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard, but yeah. I mean, pe but there are people working on it. Yeah. Got another question here. Um, yeah, well, thank you for your talk tonight. I, I, well, one, I want to answer one of your questions, and the, the story that moved me the most was Dune. I love Dune, um, yeah. And, and you look at this, you know, highly extreme environment where they were, in, they were doing environmental, I mean, there was this kind of world ecologist who was the most powerful scientist and in a way the most powerful person um, on Arrakis, right, who, because the environment was so extreme, um, the environmental science became this just, you know, absolute that everyone had to answer to. And I think actually as we do things like try and go to Mars, and people say, well, why would we go to Mars? Um, my take is if you can terraform Mars, you can terraform our planet pretty darn well, right? I mean, the amount of carbon there is a it. lot more, right? So like, <laughs> let them try, that's awesome. So the, the failing technology of Mars will do well here. 
So I think extreme environments are, are a really good uh, motivator. And I was, I, was, I was touched a little bit by what you said about um, the distance between childhood and adulthood and the way that we really change our opinions. And I think that's a, that's a very key thing. And I, I'll, I remember talking to a designer um, from GM who was designing sports cars, and he said, we design for eight-year-old boys <laughs> because they're going to buy them when they're 40. And that was a, you know, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a silly anecdote, but like, if you take it to heart, like, that's the people who buy the sports cars, right? So you, you know, you actually are designing for the eight-year-olds, and if you change the eight-year-olds, it's only 30 more years. That, that is, that's a form of long-term thinking, for sure. Um, so, th so uh, there you go. Thank you. That's great. So, hi. Um, sorry. Thanks. Um, Thank I, I wonder if, in fact, we should be aiming stories at a very, very narrow audience. And the little bit of work I've done on this is we should aim our stories at bankers. Mm -hmm. Because if we can create a narrative it, that um, resolving climate change gives them 40 and 100 year investment returns, mm -hmm. the problem is solved. And if we cannot, we're just fooling ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so uh, should we not, in fact, be focusing all of our effort, mm -hmm. which, by the way, involves public persuasion of the mm -hmm. bankers, the kids of the bankers, mm -hmm. the cousins of the bankers need to be persuading the bankers. Persuade the bankers, and then the governments will follow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because that's how apartheid fell. Mm -hmm. It was when, when the bankers said, by the way, that's the first project I got involved in, mm -hmm. is persuade bankers, and then the problem solves itself. Mm -hmm. So I'd like, to I'd like to respond to that. Um, so I think one thing that our community is actually struggling with right now is that it's, our response to climate change is really haphazard. Like there are lots of different groups that are sort of moving towards a goal, but we're, we don't have a clear sense of what that goal is. So uh, if you talk to most economists, if not all economists, they all want just a price on carbon. So I've actually been interviewing at CASBIS a bunch of economists, including George Schultz, who's going to be visiting here, um, and some other people who are working at hedge funds. And they all, I mean, the group that I'm interviewing, they all believe that climate change is happening, huge problem, and a price is just going to solve it. Mm. But the pr challenge there is, is that we've been talking about a price on carbon since the 1980s. So we've been talking about that for a really, really long time, but we haven't had a, a simple price on carbon in the United States. And the price on carbon that we've had in British Columbia, actually, it's, it's great, but because of the boom in natural gas, that actually led to increased emissions. So I think, so I think that, that just focusing on one, I mean, I'm, and I'm, I'm going to get back to the, just focusing on your audience. So I think focusing on one strategy is probably not the best solution. I think we do need a price, but we need a whole bunch of other things as well. Going back to just focusing on bankers, I'm not, I mean, I'm, you know, I, that might be how apartheid worked um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, solving that problem. But I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure if that's going to work here. And here's here's my hesitation. Um, so the, some of the some of the folks who, in the banking community, the hedge fund investment community that I've been talking to, you know, they were so excited that uh, a lot of these large oil companies are being sued by different states. But most recently, the judge basically said, "Hey, listen, I believe in climate change, but I'm throwing this lawsuit out because it just doesn't make sense to sue somebody based on." you know, past crimes that were all of, you know, that, that were related to climate change. So that kind of worries me, because if, if we're only focusing on one community and putting all of our eggs into the banking basket, what if, what if that doesn't work? So for example, like not thinking about banking, but just looking at insurance companies. Insurance companies are all on, on top of climate change. They're using like the best, latest, greatest models for sea level rise and adaptation because they want to price insurance correctly. And I think that's great. And so they're already using it, but they're kind of using it to their advantage. And so um, I'm not sure. That's sort of a very, very long-winded answer to saying I'm, I'm very hesitant to putting all of my eggs into one uh, audience basket. Sure, please. 
Yeah, and, and uh, just to note that Chaz is going to stick around after this, so, so we're not going to get to all the questions, unfortunately, but we really want, and everybody, we've actually got some other great scientists and communicators in the room. Let's keep this conversation going afterwards. And I'm easy um, to find. Very, there's only one person with this name. That's me. Crowd around. <laughs> Make sure you crowd around. We, we like to see a mob around oh, no. our speakers afterwards. <laughs> Claustrophobic. Not a filed line. That's not what this is about. It's too important. There's a question right here. So yes, are, are any of the uh, states in the Gulf region addressing climate change in any substantive way, given that the, uh, they both contribute, probably out of proportion, to, the, uh, to emissions, but are also very affected? The mm -hmm. summertime temperatures, even when I was there, were often in the 50s Celsius? Mm -hmm. No, that's a really good question. Um, so they, they are doing some projects, um, but they, I mean, the, it's basically, it goes back to extreme environments, right? I mean, you're living in a really hot, humid desert that gets really, really hot in the summertime. We have sort of two climates, like hot and hotter. Uh, and so, uh, Energy use has gone down, but if you look at residential energy use over time, it's kind of like, it's been increasing. And if, if you look at that against HDI, which is Human Development Index, we're sort of increasing our residential energy use in terms of kilowatt hours per person per year without that much improvement in the Human Development Index. And um, so there are some projects. And right now, what's really interesting about the UAE, and I can just speak about the UAE, is that they know that, you know, oil is not gonna be the future. So they're trying to reinvest in education and um, they sort of have a whole uh, amazing project that's about going to Mars and collecting really good weather data and they're trying to sort of really expand their scientific profile to trying to plan, to try to sort of make a stamp on the world about where uh, technology and science is going. But in terms of carbon footprint, yeah, that, that, that trend is still pretty alive and, and active. A question at the back. So um, off the top of my head, there are three examples of um, country-sized civilizations, the United Kingdom, Denmark, and California, which is by itself like the sixth largest economy in the world, which have made wedge, to your mm -hmm. carbon wedge, wedge-scaled progress mm -hmm. in reducing carbon change, or in reducing carbon emissions, and in accomplishing the goal that you are positing as a goal you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So I'd be very curious to know, number one, how do you incorporate the actual demonstrated results mm -hmm. of those civilizations in your research? And number mm -hmm. two, just why didn't you mention it during your talk? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great, and you, why didn't you mention France and Costa Rica? <laughs> what? So, um, uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, sorry, just banter. Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, those, there are lots of examples. So let me talk a little bit about, I mean, all of the examples you mentioned, and on top of that, France and Costa Rica as well. So I've been thinking a lot about those two specifically, and let me tell you why. Costa Rica has said no to, uh, to nuclear energy, right? Like, just completely. They don't want any nuclear energy, and they've actually demonstrated, I think, a continuous 300 days last year of just have it, supplying the entire energy for the entire country from renewables. That's amazing, 300 days, like, nonstop, uh, with current technology. France is also amazing. They've had really low carbon footprint, and sorry, uh, low um, carbon emissions because most of their energy comes from nuclear roughly 80 to 90%. Now they're starting to increase their carbon emissions because again, natural gas is starting to enter into the mix. Germany, unfortunately, has turned off all of their nuclear power plants and now they're just basically importing energy in from France, which indirectly is coming from nuclear. And so I think there are actually lots of, so there are actually lots of examples like that. Um, and even within the United States, so I mean, I, I teach a whole course on this. So even within the United States, there are really different examples about policies passing in, on the local level. So recently, California passed the solar the, the um, solar cells on your roof uh, plan that's going to basically for every new home that's sold, uh, you're, you're going to need solar panels on your roof. Similarly, Ohio, which is traditionally conservative, also passed a, a new rule on net metering. So they actually want to encourage renewables into the market because they know that it brings jobs. So they're doing these for really different reasons. And I think that your point is really a very, very valuable one, which is um, we really need to understand based on local feeling, emotion, stories of what 
no, that's not your point. Can I just finish the sentence? So you need to really care a lot about what the people are going through on the ground and what has shaped their perceptions for why they allow specific policies to pass and not others. So in the United States, we're actually pulling much more nuclear offline than building new nuclear online, and that's primarily driven by in increases in capital cost as well as um, nuclear risk perceptions. And so that's really challenging because I don't think, in the, at least in the near term, in the next five years, we're going to get much in terms of nuclear on, even though lots of people that I talk to in the nuclear space are like all for modular reactors or molten salt reactors. And I'm, I'm like, that's great, but I don't think we're going to get those technologies passed based on those two realities that I to told you. But did I roughly answer your question? Yeah, okay. Um, before we get to the next question, yeah. is there, are there resources you would point uh, folks that are watching on live stream, folks that are here to, to educate better. What, what are some really good resources and, and resources for us to look at and share? Are there like online courses? Are there just um, activist groups or anything for, for good solid climate or, or um, energy consumption information in this space? Any, any resources you would like to point out? Um. And if I'm putting it on the spot, we can tweet some things out later, so it's... it's no, so close. actually, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Like, if you type into Google right now, I mean, you, can, you have a phone. If you type into Google right now, how to save energy in your home, you'll get lists of, like, 3,000 things, 100 things, three things. Um, they're sort of not a very unified, clear message and, of and what we should things, do. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And they're all different okay. things. Okay. Everything, so, so don't type in your phone right now. <laughs> um, so I, I also study water and as, uh, uh, how do people use water in, in both in the United States and in other countries. And uh, we actually, uh, you know, there was a tweet that was retweeted by the EPA that linked to a site that said you should reuse your ice cubes to water your plants as a way to save water. And so it's, um, so, so no, but, but what this highlights is that there's this huge, um, we need a concerted, concerted effort to sort of uh, uh, figure out what we need. And I'm not sure if I can, I mean, there, there are lots of resources. There's okay. 350.org is, is uh, Bill McKibben's group. Right. Uh, Al Gore has a new movie out, An Inconvenient Truth, part two. Uh, um, there are lots of policies, so I read Climate Wire and um, Green Wire, Energy Wire. There's all sort of repositories for the latest and greatest in research that's happening. Um, uh, the New York Times has an amazing green, uh, I mean, they have an amazing group of environmental uh, news reporters. Washington Post uh, also does an amazing job with, um, with, their, with their new staff with reporting on what's going on. Okay. We've got a question right here, I think. Yeah. yeah. And it's not so much a question, but maybe a comment and answer to your question. And forgive sure me, because I don't... Real close. Hold it yeah. closer, thanks. Yeah. I don't know if I can unpack all my thoughts, but trying to understand what you said, I'll do my best. Um, Josh Fox, do you know who that <laughs> is? Gasland. Closer, thank you. Yeah. Uh, clearly, I don't do this very often. Um, he, I had the opportunity to recently listen to a story that he told. It's performance art that he's getting ready to put out into different communities because he, granted he's focused on fracking, he realizes that the message isn't getting out. And in fact, his message was tainted by people saying, you don't have the facts. You may have the feeling you're a funny guy, you can share stories, but you don't have the facts. Your facts aren't real. And what he tells in the story is about how um, data mining, and I can't even describe it very well, but how he was basically smeared by the media based on a number of different factors. And I'm wondering if I, I was thinking of your facts and storytelling, and I'm wondering if one of the opportunities that we have is to try and get to people that are maybe non-believers of climate change through one kind of celebrity and, and a lot of what people are interested in today that maybe, I don't know if they're the uneducated or the just, just the non-believers, but get out there and tell them stories that attract something that's interesting in sort of a mm -hmm. celebrity way mm -hmm. to get them to listen to these things. Mm -hmm. um, it really impacted me. I'm a person that goes, I listen to all these things. I knew all the things I should do. I do some of them, I don't do all of them, but I try to influence others to do that in my own way. But I wonder if that's something to consider, to think about what he's doing, or maybe even just connect with him to see what he's doing, because he's trying really hard mm -hmm. to influence and to impact mm -hmm. this sort of change. 
Yeah, and uh, that's, uh, that's a great point. There's actually another group that's housed at Stanford called the Solutions Project, and they're working with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Mark Ruffalo and some other really famous, fancy uh, actors and stuff like that in trying to get uh, people to sort of um, understand the message. Uh, yeah, so there are, are groups doing that in the climate change space too, and I know he works mostly on fracking and natural gas, but I'll, I'll definitely try to connect with him at some point. Thank you. Got a question in the back? Test, test, test. Okay. Hi. So, um, first of all, it was interesting for me to see the Women's March up there because, funny enough, the Women's March in New York of the suffragettes back then is, has been used for a story of the tobacco industry. I don't know whether you know, but uh, a lot of the women have been given cigarettes. And that was the point when suddenly smoking got really fashionable for independent, strong women. So this march has been used as an advertising story, basically. As we know now, a very unhealthy advertising story in the long term. So I was wondering, but my, this is just a story to tell, but my question was, I was wondering, and this is maybe my European view and a cr critical question, whether it's really the time today, especially in this political climate here in the US, but also in other countries in Europe more and more, to tell stories, or is it, isn't it more the, question, the, the situation where we should really stick to reality and teach people more to be realistic about things and to re see the things more as they are and to act on that? And, and shouldn't all our efforts be more concentrated on that? This is just a question I'm having. I don't know. But I'd, I'd like to bring up this question because I think it's a really important question, exactly, especially right now. Um, no, I think that's a great point. Uh, the thing is, for each for each present where we are right now, we have sort of a multitude of futures that we could potentially be on. Uh, and so, I guess my question to you back would be: Is there a particular future that I mean? Is there a particular future that we should focus on? Or um, so. So imagine sort of a, a cone that sort of goes out from where we are today. And even where we are today is not just a point location, it's sort of multiple locations in a space. And so everything sort of widens out from that. And so we can, we can talk about like all of those different futures. And I'm not saying that we should, I mean, I mentioned both dystopia and utopia. I think actually both, especially in the next few decades, both are within our grasp. And so I'm, I'm not sort of saying that we should paint a false future in any way, but I think that we should paint a future that, we should paint a multitude of futures that are possible based on what we change right now. Does that make sense? No, I think I think I really like what you say. That that's not the point. I'm just I just wanted to bring up the general question whether uh, it's something I'm thinking about a lot myself, and I don't have an answer. But I'm still thinking about whether it's really the time to create more narratives or more stories, or whether it's not the time to really uh, get back to realities. Because a lot of politicians at the moment in a lot of countries in this world are telling a lot sure. of stories which don't have anything to do with our realities yeah. or the realities of the people who vote for them. And so I'm wondering whether it's really the right climate, political climate, mm -hmm. basically, to bring up new stories or whether we should get back to a new kind of realism, mm -hmm. uh, so to say. It's, a, it's also a philosoph philosophical question, sure. of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in some cases mm -hmm. we have sort of narratives that we work with through our lives. I mean, we're not just talking about fancy, we're not just talking mm -hmm. about fairy tales here. We're mm -hmm. also talking about the story of mm -hmm. it's important for me to have an electric car or it's important for me to mm -hmm. think before I buy certain things or, or, or go on a, a plane that, that being conscientious about it. So um, I don't know if they're all like literal fiction stories we're talking about mm -hmm. here. Uh, I think we have time for one last question. We're going to take one last question in, and then please stick around and keep the questions coming because Shaz wants to keep the dialogues going. It's your last question of the night. Thank you so much for that talk. It really, um, I've been thinking about these issues as well, and I think you've diagnosed the situation pretty on point in terms of what we need to do and how we need to catalyze this um, planetary sort of. Um, we talk about coherence as a term that we use in terms of thinking about the culture. Um, so I was wondering if you could go back a few slides to the project that you're working on. Sure. I thought it was just 
really a wonderful collection of uh, awesome. objectives. Mm -hmm. To me, this just makes me optimistic to think that we could start working on something like this and together like have this very feasible sense of like this is possible. Um, I guess I was just wondering if, where are you in terms of like putting this theory right now? You've been sort of in academia. Mm -hmm. How does this go from you know the ivory tower to the grassroots? How do we get people actively making this happen? And and sort of build on that. Why don't we actually, as the last sort of thing, why don't you sort of frame what the Carnegie um, project is? It's a two-year project, mm -hmm. right? I have two years. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and so. Set your clocks. We'll meet back here in two years, and you'll tell us what. So, um, are you going to be based at Indiana through this? Are you sure. going in other places? What's what's your, or, or do you know yet? No, that's a. Both of these are sort of great questions. So I, I'm like really, really blessed to have this fellowship that buys some of my time for a while to solve those three problems up there. Um, and so, um, what I'm planning to do is I'm planning to actually try to meet meet and talk with people who are doing grassroots work. So I've tried to connect with the Climate Advocacy Lab here. Um, I'm talking with people who are um, working on a much more different level. So policymakers. I'm trying to talk, I mean, I'm just trying, like right now I'm just going broad. So the fellowship actually starts in September. So that's why I've presented you with just the research questions as opposed to anything that's actual work done. Um, the second year I'm planning to just travel, so to sort of be like a, a vagabond of, of sorts and trying to leave, I mean, you're right, I've been on foot. Right? On foot. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to fly. <laughs> um, but uh, We could live stream it. We could, yeah. we could do a whole thing of it. Yeah, my whole life could be, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but I, th I think that you're right. I think I need to connect with people outside of academia. And I've, you're right. Well, I've been an academic through and through, like I'm like right. st straight up. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> so you might be familiar with David Krakauer, who's a mm -hmm. molecular, molecular biologist turned complexity scientist, mm -hmm. who has a great sort of notion that he says, culture is like a giant inception event in the mind. And so for me, when I think about this, I feel like the future is gonna be won and lost in the battleground of culture. And thinking about that in the context of seeding these ideas, and someone mentioned sort of getting to the cultural figureheads, I feel like that's a really good approach that, um, glad that you have, you know, these, a good story to, to present them so that they can start spreading the word. Work with me. <laughs> and so we end yes. with a great story at the beginning. That's right. Um, thank you so much. Let's have a big round of applause. For thank you. Michael, thank you. long now challenge coin for you to remind you to seize the millennium but start sooner please we really need <laughs> you to start soon. sooner thank oh, you thank so you. much really appreciate thanks. it one more big round of applause. thank you thanks for listening to the conversations at the interval to find out more about our series and long now go to theinterval.org or longnow.org thanks again <laughs>